From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. everybody to another edition of Are You Not Entertained? We are back and we're all here, which I'm delighted to say after a lengthy summer break. We are all here, the Three Musketeers. Roger, Giles, come in fellas. Roger, you first. How are you, mate? I'm good. I'm getting towards the end of all the stresses around summer and travelling. I don't know about you guys, but man oh man, travelling these days is, is a real problem. You know, like... Yeah, it's a ball ache. It's a, it's a ball ache. I mean, and it used to be a little bit simpler. I mean, you know, it's it's becoming a little bit of a a pet peeve of mine. I mean, like you book a flight, then you know you oh we're overbooked. Uh, you have to wait, and then you eventually get on. You maybe they've lost your luggage, and then you've got the passport, the passport machines now, and like, it's just so fucking stressful because like you've got to make a call about who is the idiot who doesn't know how to use those machines, you know, and like you you would think right. The young people will know how to do it and it'll be the oldies that don't matter. And then you put yourself, you know, behind a young person and it's like the fucking village idiot. You know, I've seen people putting their passport up in the thing where it takes your photo. Do you know, do you know what I mean? And by the, at the same time, the two old codgers, you know, the old couple, they're well through. They've sailed through. And like you're, but I'm like, I got myself in a little bit of trouble because I got, I lost patience and I said, what's your problem, mate? What's your problem? Can I possibly help you? Do you know what I mean? So it's just, summer's becoming very difficult, I have to admit. Ladies and gentlemen, our very special guest, Jerry Muck-Seinfeld there, with his little riff on travel. Jilo, how are you, mate? Are you well? I think rather than being groundsman or whatever this show is called, I think it needs to be going to grumpy old men. And I think Roger's yeah. the captain of the ship, Waldorf Sadler and 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 whomever. Um, I'm also well. Um, I unfortunately picked, um, as for those uh, listeners who are... <clears throat> residents of the United Kingdom. It's not been a great summer. And I've been here all summer, moving houses and generally um, being stressed and then took a week off last week where it rained in Greece solidly. So um, I'm feeling grumpy for meteorological reasons. uh, But it's great to be back. I am so, so uh, revved up by not just doing these shows again and the things we're doing, but with the mouthwatering prospect of the uh, of the summit in Como, the sports summit in Como that Roger and and his team are, are organising. I've just couldn't get wait get back to get school, and here I am. Well, here we all are, gents, and it really has been quite the summer. You you may not have had the good weather, Giles, but there's certainly been an awful lot of activity, shall we call it, in the sporting world and beyond. And um, it seemed appropriate that this first show back, we all kick around some of the things that have happened this summer because on and off the pitches and the fields, it's been really quite remarkable what's gone on. I've got a pretty good idea. Giles, what you're going to want to talk about first. So I'm going to throw it over to Rog first and find out one of the things that caught his eye over the summer. Well, okay, in no particular order, let's start where I always like to start, which is about leadership and sport. What's happening at Tottenham Hotspur cannot go unmentioned. That Australian, Ange Pognikoskloo, who was ridiculed as a nobody, the usual, what experience does he have of the Premier League, has taken what is traditionally 
a team that has got no winning mentality, a half a century mentality of losing every which way possible. And they're buzzing, aren't they? Those fans are absolutely buzzing. You've got Robbie Williams with Angels. If I may, with three games into the season, Fulham have dumped them out the Carabao Cup. I mean, come on, let's not get carried away too early. Who cares about that? I mean, like, that's master plan. He's not in Europe. Get rid of these diddy tournaments. Let the other teams fight for them. He's preparing. This is international week. He's in there with his Australian grit and he's got all those Tottenham lads right up for it. And I'm telling you, I'm making a prediction here. Top three, top three. Tottenham top three. That's a decent prediction, right? That's a decent prediction. It's nice to have you committed to the podcast. So we've got it there at the end of the season. And what worries me is that you have a habit of being right with these predictions. And I'm not at all sure I'm ready for Tottenham to be top three just yet. Yeah, uh, you know, and of course, the rest of the football world, you know, where do you want to start? Uh, the thing I would say at the start, again, a little bit more jokey than anything else, we've got a lot of mates that work at Man United, so I, I feel a little bit off having a go at them. But I mean, honestly, can we have some kind of idea about what the personality tests are for the recruitment? You know, like, what is it you need to be to get signed in United these days? What kind of, like, fetishes do you need to have? It's unbelievable what's going on. And, and I do feel sorry for all the good folks, the boys and girls at Man United, because they're not working in the football department and they're getting dealt a rubbish hand. Anthony now falling on from Mason Greenwoods, all the stuff for Harry Maguire as well in previous years. United, I think, are going to have a tough, tough season. Well, they've had a tough few years. I mean, they've been unconvincingly decent the last couple of years, Rog, but I don't think anyone really expects them to do anything meaningful. It's just they're going through that period. But what is it, 10 years since they won the Premier League? Yeah. Is it 10 years? Maybe more. It's been a long period. And, uh, you know, obviously the thing about the Glazers selling, not selling, selling, not selling... There's a lot of United lads that are very, very unhappy. And English football, European football needs Man United. You just look at it and it doesn't look like a healthy club. And that saddens me. It really does. And you link it a little bit to what I think has been one of the themes of this summer, which is the massive wake-up call from especially the English media around the plans of Saudi Arabia. Didn't they see this coming? Did they think it was just China all over again and it was going to be... They're coming hard for what I'd like to call the hegemony of Europe in football. I think they're coming hard for it. There was the interview the other day by the leaders of Saudi Arabia. They're using words like renaissance of Saudi Arabia, the new Europe. And then this is more Giles' stuff about history and everything like that. But, you know, we're going to start getting familiar with things like the Battle of Lepanto. And it's going to be one of the major themes, I think, which is in this whole moment of angst around Saudi, around Islam, isn't it just the perfect storm that these are the people coming for the industry of sport? I live in a southern European country that for many years has been dealing with immigration, migration and a changing of the culture. Saudi is here and they're not going to stop. And I just think that is the major geopolitical issue for sport. And it's been amazing this summer to see the angst from the London-centric media that had no issues when England was dominant with the top dollar as money. And now it's not going to be the case. And 
they then get Southgate on a virtue signalling thing because he picked Henderson. It's a hell of a mess and it's not going to get easier. This has only scratched the surface of sport dealing with Saudi Arabia. Well, there's a lot to unpack there and I've certainly got thoughts there. But Jarlo, let's bring you in because you haven't had a chance to say a word yet. What's your thoughts on what Ross just talked about there, the Saudis and uh, the football? Well, I think he's talked about, you know, the, the socioeconomic shift in sport And I think the other sort of main thing that I saw over the summer, I was lucky enough to go down to Australia for work for the British and Irish Lions, but I was therefore privileged enough to be around the Australian cities during the Women's Football World Cup. And if there was ever a country that could embrace a new global sporting event like the Women's World Cup, in quite the way they did, it would be Australia in terms of passion from people and the commitment from Australians to be supporting not just the Matildas, as they're called, the Australian national team, but just it was a major sporting event at the highest level on some of the great stadiums of the world. And it really dawned on me how much we've been talking about shift in culture. We're talking about shift in socioeconomics. It's how the seismic shifts, the geopolitical plates are shifting in sport. And we've been talking about it for a long time. But to see it in action is sort of writ large at the moment. And that's been something that I've sort of been thinking a lot about, both professionally, but also with with our podcast and, and what we talk about. You know, it's funny, those two subjects, the resurgence of women's sport and the Saudis are two topics that we've harped on on this podcast for a long, long time now. Let's come on to the World Cup shortly, because I think that was worthy of discussion for sure. But let's go back to the Saudis, Rog, because obviously as a, as a Fulham fan, we were right in the crosshairs of this. Yeah, they took Mitrovic ultimately. They tried to take Silva, the manager. They tried to take a couple of other players. They tried to take Willian three days after he'd signed a new contract. So I had a very personal experience of what that's like coming in. But stepping back and watching the way they're going about this, you know, the writing was on the wall with Liv, the kind of money they were throwing at golfers to come and join that tour. And again, watching it afterwards and realising that, to me, I still believe that Liv was a means to an end, that it was a means to bring the PGA Tour to the negotiating table and they'll happily ditch Liv as and when they need to in order to get their claws into the PGA Tour. And I suspect that's probably going to happen. But watching the football, Rog, I found really interesting because the golfers obviously... You get the individuals, you've got the whole circus, right? You've got Phil Mickelson, you've got Dustin Johnson, you've got Brooks Kepka. Sticking two or three world-class players into the existing standard of Saudi football is a very different proposition indeed. The economics of it aren't uppermost in Saudi minds the same way they're not in the Gulf. But I just wonder, when you mentioned there it was like China, we saw this in China, we did see a lot of big money coming in for players to be sent, not this kind of money, obviously, but to go and play in China. And it just kind of fizzled out. What's your thoughts having looked at this now, Rog, as to where they go from here? I mean, I can see what they're trying to do, but I wonder with one eye on live and that perhaps being a means to an end, what is the potential end that the Saudis are trying to broker here with the Saudi League? Or do you genuinely think that they're going to try and build six or seven clubs with 11 world-class players in them and build a league that they think everyone around the world is going to watch? It's a great question. You know, and the answer is probably both. The first answer I have to give is that, it's what I said to earlier, and I'm not joking about this. You know, it's nearly, I don't know, when I wrote that first article about the Arabian Nights. But this isn't about sport. This is about the Middle East trying to 
diversify its economy from carbon and oil. And in its sites, it's got sport, media and entertainment. They genuinely, I mean, he used those words directly. We will be the new Europe. We will have a renaissance. He then used the word war. This is my war. It will be my lifetime's war. They're not playing at this. They believe that Europe geopolitically is on its last legs. The demographics, there's no birth rate, there's no growth. I won't go into all of that, but that's a big, big, big... They believe Europe is there for the taking. And they are going after it. Now, sport just happens to be one of the first things they're going for. Now, so then you say, let's move to tactics now as opposed to that strategy. The tactics are probably both. Yes, they want to make the SPL, the Saudi League, they want to make it a very, very good league. They won't stop the way China did. They will probably get into all kind of politics about whether they then belong to the Asian Football Confederation, the AFC or UEFA. They'll probably push to get some of their clubs in the Champions League. But what I mean by that is they've got double-pronged strategy, I think. They will try and manoeuvre the governing body, as you rightly said, Grant, the way they tried with the PGA. But we've seen sport doesn't move. So what would you do if you were them? Would you grind out the horrendous politics of UEFA and FIFA and all of that and try and let them understand that you're not going away and get ground down by all of that? Or would you just create, as they did with Liv, a credible new property and from that position of strength come back to the negotiating table? That's clearly what they're doing. You know, it's tactical, but... It's not just then, like you say, with Liv, they'll kind of like fold it in and it'll all be back to where we were the day before. I am convinced that in five years' time, the SPL, the Saudi Professional League, will be one of the top five leagues in corporate world. It's called MENA, Middle East, North Africa and Europe. I think we've got to face into this. It's going to be one of the major roundtables in Como. How does European sport deal with Saudi? There's just a lot of really good people, people now, individuals, because at the end of the day, and you know, I always believe it's about individuals and leaders. There's a lot of great people migrating towards that part of the world grant. Peter Hutton's on the board of the SPL. Andy Sutherland is now operating. He's one of the top comms guys in sport of my generation. This isn't going to stop. And we get the scribblers in London talking the most naive, appalling drivel about Saudi when they don't seem to take on board, one, that the West has done a major deal with Saudi for 50 years, and two, Saudi is already everywhere, already everywhere, in every PE fund, in every VC fund, sponsoring F1, everywhere, and they want to give Southgate a hard time because he picks Henderson. I don't know what's wrong with these people. I really want to shake them and say, do you understand how the big world works? No, I don't think they do, right? I'm interested in your categorization of live as a credible product because my biases are very clear I've laid them out in this this show but still putting those aside and looking at what live is I think it's anything but a credible product I don't think it's really changed since it landed except the interest in it has probably died down a little bit if anything and yes they've managed to get concessions from PGA Tour and, and we will see in the fullness of time how those play out 
But football's a very, very, very different beast, Roger, as you know, right? The allegiances to golfers, right? It's the Phil Mickelson fans, the Dustin Johnson fans, the Brooks Kepka fans. You know, those guys have 20-year career maybe, probably less with the live money because they just won't bother playing much anymore. The football side is different. And yes, I understand we've had this discussion on the show before about the shifting allegiances from clubs to players. But ultimately, unless you can find someone, the same problem Liv had in terms of getting someone to televise these games, unless you can find someone to televise all these Saudi games, to build an audience for them in Europe, in the UK, in Germany, in France, in America, I'm not saying they can't do it, but it's going to be very, very difficult for anyone to connect with these clubs that have you know, Mitrovic up front playing with Neymar and nine guys you've never heard of who are not very good behind them. I just struggle to see how they're going to build an audience, a global audience, that start wearing the Mitrovic's Al-Hilal shirt on the streets of Napoli, for example. Well, what I would say to you, and again, I think this shows, and I understand this, this isn't a criticism, this shows your English bias. Probably. No, but I'll tell you why. The EPL has been such a success that is hidden from everybody in England, because Scotland, we knew all about this a long time ago. You've not realised how the French League, the German League, the Italian league is already not marketable in the way that you're suggesting the Saudi league is not marketable. If I had to make a bet today on whose overseas rights would be more valuable, the SPL or Serie A, in the next right cycle, let's say five years' time, I'm going for Saudi. That's fair enough. In five years' time, I can see that being the case. Giles, what's your take on all this? I know football is not your game, but from a sponsorship standpoint, you have to be aware of this stuff. Um, it's fascinating listening to you both, and it's always a masterclass for me listening to you both. It's such a huge topic. I agree with a lot of what Roger says, and I think this this shift in the sort of geopolitics as we're talking about has been inevitable. But as Liv showed, you've still got to get the product right. And that's where, for me, the jury is still out. I'm not saying it can't be done. Of course it can be done. And throw the right money at things. The tinderbox can be lit and sparks can fly. But equally, as China discovered in many of the sports they touched, maybe that was too political. Maybe they didn't have the heart for it. Maybe there were different forces at play. But there are a lot of examples in sport over the last 100 years where a lot of money has been injected and abject failures have followed where if you don't bring the fan along with you, then you don't have the product. And I think that's going to be the challenge. And the bit that you said, Rog, earlier, I think is interesting, is the talent drain going to Saudi from very, very respected senior leadership from the world of sport may be the difference, rather than just writing checkbooks and saying, we will succeed, but we don't actually have a plan. And I would probably agree with Grant that I'm not entirely sure how compelling Liv ever was other than sort of headlines on the media of stirring it all up. I'm not sure I ever really got very excited about a single tournament. I'm told by mates down in Adelaide it was good fun down there, but the Australians were always going to get overexcited about having superstar golfers come down because the PGA Tour had sort of ignored them for decades and therefore they were kind of keen to put two fingers up to the old hegemony of American golf, I suspect. And the Australians, you will always back to uh, sort of give two fingers to the status quo anyway. I, you're absolutely right, Rogers. What Saudi is doing is this is the new world order and it's coming. Whether they can make it work in sport in terms of engaging passion, 
to the level that everyone wants to. It's theirs to lose, in a sense. They've got the money, they've got the ambition. Let's see. Uh, golf was not a great start, I don't think. But maybe that wasn't the big play. Maybe the big play was with other pieces. So there is no doubt at all that from a geopolitical and corporate point of view, many big organizations are targeting that part of the world and will be looking to engage with Saudi Arabia and engage with some of these sports in particular, but there'll be cultural activities as well, because it's a means to an end. So interesting times, as the Chinese might say. Let me come back on that because we, and I put myself with you guys on this one, we have got a weakness in that we believe the world centres around us, the West. And when I use this strapline money, demographics and geopolitics, it's not just a slogan. What I think we are missing as risk and what the Saudis absolutely know that we are weak at is that what's the population of, of Europe? About 300 million, maybe a wee bit more. Same in America. Together, that is less than 10% of the global population. So why does everybody talk about our sport and will they do it right? And maybe they don't give a shit about whether we think they'll do it or right or not. They just need to position themselves to hit the 7 billion of people who, by the way, are still having babies and the demographics are growing, and they'll just give up on old Europe that's getting older and America where the average age of the fan is over 60. Do you know what I'm saying? This is what I think Western-centric media misses. This is the big fucking chessboard, and they are going to use sport to hit the 7 billion, and if necessary the 700 million of the Old West, they'll just be a tool to get them there. And if they have to trash it as they have golf in the meantime, that's what they'll do. They'll trash it. It's a stepping stone to get 8 billion total addressable market. Well, we'll see. And before we get sucked too far down the football hole, there's an awful lot more stuff to discuss. So I know that we can confidently park this knowing that we'll be back to it if not every week, then most weeks, I suspect, as we go forward, because this story is not going anywhere. Charlie, let me come back to you. Cricket. What a phenomenal summer of cricket. You know, we've spent a lot of time talking about the new formats, the way cricket has been at the vanguard of shaking up the sport to try and attract fans. But what a test series the Ashes was. You know, for me, I haven't watched much test cricket for quite some time. I watched every single test match, and it was an extraordinary series that really changed my opinion of test cricket, kind of took me back to when I was watching both them and the guys in 1981, took me back to that kind of swashbuckling uh, style. What did, what did you make of what, what you saw on the cricket field in the summer? Well, like you, I, I didn't miss very much. I worked from home more than I probably should have done just to make sure the telly could be on in the background. 23 and a half days, I think it was, of test match cricket. The influence of 2020 has created this thing called baseball and, and variants of it, of where players are playing a completely different style that creates jeopardy, creates excitement. Well, one team was. One team was. I think there are two things I've never seen before in cricket from this summer, which was so exciting. The one, and I say this just as someone who is from the United Kingdom and therefore has a passionate enjoyment of needling Australians, but to see nine Australians on the boundary looking bullied by England as the ball was screaming past their ears was something just 
brilliant to behold and, and very, very special. But I think what I really took away is I've been a cricket fan all my life and I'm lucky enough to be a pompous old MCC member. By the way, not a great moment in the club's history of the members behaving so badly and we couldn't talk about that. It was not great and I was very pleased how quickly the club dealt with that because it just wasn't, wasn't, wasn't cricket. It just wasn't and cricket, yeah. It just wasn't cricket. But I think what I noticed from my sort of middle-class eerie of uh, southwest london is quite how many non-cricket fans were talking about the cricket and how much they were enjoying test match cricket i think for the first time if you didn't understand test match cricket and hadn't been brought up with it or didn't know about it it was something that was always going to be left slightly i don't really understand that quirky game i think this summer there were an awful lot of new fans to the game who were watching the ashes unfold it was jeopardy it was binary it had everything it had everything from the personality so it left everybody quite breathless I think actually being down in Australia where I was just between the fourth and fifth tests when effectively the ashes were retained by Australia and therefore the ashes were lost inverted commas I've never met so many Australians who were so complimentary about how the English were playing how much they were enjoying it how it was the spirit of the game in terms of playing hard, playing to win. And for me, it just gave a really old-fashioned joy of sport moment back to me. Not that it had gone particularly, but a, a real reminder of how bloody special sport can be when you have two teams just going great guns at each other and all of the narrative that cricket does. So a big congratulations to everybody involved in that, on, on the players particularly. It was astonishing to watch. Yeah, look, as I said, I, I reveled in that series. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I was glued to the whole thing. But it did make me realise the fact that England did so well playing the way they played, taking all the kind of risks they took and ripping up any kind of rule book, it made you realise the lopsided power the media has, Jarlow, because they had success playing that way. And it was all about baseball. It was all about this new philosophy. It was all about, you know, shaking up test cricket and playing the way they did. They could have lost 5 nothing. Very, very easily. They weren't that far away from losing 5 nothing, right? It, it wouldn't have taken an awful lot for that to happen. And it just made you realise this renaissance of cricket would have been strangled at birth because the media would have been all over them. Well, you, you can't lose 5 nothing to the Australians. And it, it's sad to me that style is great and style is important as long as you're winning. But if you don't win with that, there wouldn't have been many articles saying, hey, you know what, it doesn't matter that we lost the Ashes. This is an England cricket team that's fun to watch. And that, to me, was the reality of it. You know, every single one of those games could have gone either way. And the game we did lose was a cracking game of cricket. Talking to my mates afterwards, no one was really pissed off that we lost. It was just a great game of cricket. But they all could have gone that way. And you just wonder, I remember being down in Australia in 2006, I think it was, when the Ashes were seven, I forget the exact year, when we got whitewashed down there. And I went to the test at the Sydney Cricket Ground. It was one of the most miserable days of my life, frankly. Um, <laughs> Uh, topped only by the Monday morning back in the office. But you realise, right, the media can put so much pressure on these players, on McCullum, on on Stokes, and change the way they do these things. And I, and I hope, I really do hope they stick to this, whether they have success with it or not. When you think about sport and the absolute margins of error and the moments of what creates people, and sends people to the Pantheon and sends others into the abyss of Hades, 
is often very fine line and that sport what makes sport so compelling is this unscripted drama that we've talked about so much but also the precarious fate and fortune of that and you're right is that England could have lost that and McCullum would have faced an unbelievable media grilling and may not have survived etc etc as it is he's a hero many of his players are heroes and they live to fight another day and For me, what it was is a celebration of how precarious and joyful sport can be. The end of the Scottish Open this year of your lad Bob, uh, what's his face, a Scottish boy, and and Rory again. McIntyre. I mean, just phenomenal. And it could have gone either way. And I think that's the Tabasco in sport, because you're right, the media can slay very quickly. And we've got rugby going on right now with the World Cup, and there are going to be teams that are going to be slayed, I suspect, in the next few weeks, when maybe... They shouldn't be in, they should be forgiven for playing in the right way, which is with adventure and spirit, because that's what we all love. Yeah. To win. Rog. Yeah, I think in cricket, I agree with all of that, really. I think Australia missed a, a real chance to get over sandpaper scandals by doing what they did. I, I think that, would, yeah. that really annoyed me, actually. But the most important story in cricket is not what you're talking about, it's the Rajasthan Royals. Oh, I know buying, yeah, right. Yorkshire. Which, I, I'm sorry, I'm coming back to what I said five minutes ago. This is all around us. If we look at our sector, the way it is now and where it was when we started this podcast, it's unrecognisable. There's things happening just now that would have been laughed out of court as being even thought of, and they're now actually happening. One has to ask what the future of cricket is now. Somebody came on to me, I think it was Reese Beer, one of our splendid chaps, won football now and, and obviously a big cricket and football fan. He was saying, you know, what is the future then for cricket? When you think about calendar, you think about the governing bodies and all the various conflicts about players' time and money. (laughs) The Indians bought Geoffrey Boycott's cricket club. Let's let that sink in. This is only the start. We need to get ready. We need to get ready. I have no doubt we'll be discussing that as well as we move through. Rog, what else off the field caught your attention this summer? Off the field is pretty easy. Right now, by the time this goes out, it might have been resolved. But right now, the most important story ah, in sport a deal's of the last been done. three or four years. A deal's been done this afternoon. Charter and Disney. What deal? About, yeah, what deal uh, was done? I, will, I literally saw the headline flash up on my phone. I will tell you. Hold on. Disney Charter end carriage dispute restoring ESPN to 15 million spectrum households. Okay, literally, that's the headline. The details haven't come out. Okay. So basically, they've done a deal. We won't know exactly who caved, probably. Maybe it will come out in the coming days. But the reality of this is a very, very important one and a very simple one. The industry of sport, both sides of the Atlantic, for 30-odd years has been financed by the cable bundle, which is a product that has been eaten away consistently over the last 10 years to such a state now that Charter feels that it can go to the daddy of them all, ESPN, and saying, I'm not paying what you want. Now, if the cable bundle goes, the industry of sport goes pretty soon after, or if it doesn't go in that kind of absolute way, what it means is there'll be some survivors which are at the very premium end of our industry, And there will be a long tail of second, third and fourth tier rights that will go no bid because the underlying revenue model for this industry, as you can see in the Charter Disney dispute, is at the very end of days. And you link that 
reality to what seems to be an enormous penny that has dropped in London around the threat of piracy and what it actually means. Uh, kudos to Matt Cutler for a wonderful series of podcasts on that. And all of a sudden, everything that we've said, being called Cassandras, being called Doomsters, is right in front of our face. Now, this is an industry facing absolutely a perfect storm. And that story of ESPN and Charter and what we will learn about in the next couple of days will inform, as I would call it, the Canadian, the coal mine grant. Just expand on that a little bit, because when you talk about third and fourth tier rights that just won't be bid anymore, tell us a little bit about how you see this all. Because you've talked at length in the past about the decline in value of Serie A rights for a start, and you've been absolutely right. Does this mean that individual leagues get punished, or does this mean that teams start negotiating on individual bases based on their own popularity? How does no, anything no, no, shakes no. out? No, no, no. It's, I, I would look at it from the other point of view. Just look at who is the financier of sport. The financier of sport is the media sector. The media sector has been happy to take bundles, the idea of a bundle in the past. That can be a league itself, which in Serie A's case includes Juventus, includes Salernitana or Man City and Bournemouth, they've been forced to take that bundle. Then even more than that, they've been forced to take bundles of sport. In the case of Charter and ESPN, ESPN as a channel is de facto a bundle. It's got some rights that are more interesting than others. And they have always come along with this take it all or leave it all attitude. Now, people have had enough of that. Why have they had enough of that? Because their own business model does not allow them to do that anymore. The media sector, which had hugely interesting margins with this cable bundle, has evolved and is evolving into a streaming product which has got significantly, significantly less margins. Now, when you're losing marginality and you're losing profits, what does that mean? You can't afford to bid for sports rights the way you did up until yesterday. So what do you start doing? You start making choices. If I've only got a limited budget, I'm going to take the NBA, I'm going to take the EPL, I'm going to take, uh, obviously, the granddaddy NFL. But I tell you what, see, for baseball, I just want the playoffs. Even NBA, can you just give me the last quarter? You know, what I'm saying is media is finance sport. Media is running out of money. They're going to start getting awful picky and that bundle is not going to last very much longer. Does that mean all these leagues are forced to finally start these DTC models? Yeah. What do you do when you no longer have got the money coming in? In any business, if your revenue is taking a major cut, that you can do two things. You can try and find a new revenue model, which is your thing, or the other one is you address your cost base. The cost base is obviously the one that's going to get addressed. That's the remuneration of athletes and players. So, uh, like I've said a couple of times over these years, I wouldn't be in the sports agency business. I certainly wouldn't be buying one these days because unless you are a major, major star in whatever sport, your wages are coming down because they have to come down because the revenues aren't there to pay you anymore. So sports will do two things. They'll try and do this D to C model. And I think it's a lot harder than they think. It's possible, but it's a lot, lot harder. You need to be excellent, excellent in customer relationship management and strategic marketing. Sport doesn't have those skills. 
the easier one is to address players' wages because they went up as revenues went up, they will go down as revenues go down. Look, Roger, right, except obviously there's the elephant in the room that we've already talked about, which is the Saudis, right? Trying to cut wages at a time when the Saudis have got an open checkbook makes for a very interesting dichotomy, don't you think? Doesn't it? Doesn't it? That's exactly where we are, how that plays out. And I would say to everybody in any part of the world these days, don't be commodity. Find a skill set that gives you some kind of unique selling proposition of excellence or actually uniqueness. If you are a commodity skill, whether it's in sport or any other business, I'm afraid you're toast. In this world coming up, you're toast. Excellent. Jono, uh, <laughs> let's talk about tennis, shall we? We're recording this the day after um, Novak Djokovic got to 24 Grand Slams by beating Medvedev in the US Open final. Your thoughts on a summer of tennis? I know you're a big tennis fan. What did you make of Wimbledon, that fantastic Djokovic Alcaraz final? What did you make of the last couple of weeks at the US Open, Coco Golf and Djokovic? Obviously, there's so many stories in tennis. What do you make of all that? Well, I think Coco's victory yesterday was brilliant and, and what a character she is and how much joy. And I rather feel that she may have a longer tail than Radicanu in terms of where that one goes. Um, I hope I'm wrong, but I think I'm not. I think the Alcaraz victory at Wimbledon was astonishing in terms of we've lived for 17, 18 years with maybe the greatest triumvirate of gladiators dominating a sport, probably like no other sport's ever seen before or since. And the greatest of them all, certainly by record, being defeated by a young Spaniard aged 20 years old, playing the kind of tennis he did, I think just was terrific for everybody who was lucky enough to watch wherever they were in the world. And I don't think, though, it takes away from the concerns that live within the world. And Roger has been vocal on it. And I think he's right, is that tennis still has a lot to do. Yes, you need the heroes. Yes, you need the new guys and girls coming through to to try and galvanise. But having seen up close and quite closely both the work that's happening in paddle or pedal and pickleball, the sheer numbers no, Pickel. and Pickel, Pickel yeah. that are the, the, <laughs> that the sheer numbers of participation and fandom that's growing is uh, it's more than a concern. It's an enemy at the gate for tennis. And I'm very I'm aware of that is that the tennis um, powers that be are trying to sort of strangle and control both those new parvenus. But those parvenus are saying nah, we're our own sports. We're doing it our way. You don't get to control us. We're going to do it our way. So the reason I'm in two minds about it is that when you see the kind of finals that we've seen at Wimbledon and just at the US Open in the last couple of days, you realise how wonderful a sport tennis is in terms of gladiatorial chess. And it's the ultimate in sort of sword fighting, but with safety, if you like, because that's all tennis really is. It's fencing. It's old-fashioned sword fighting, in my view. But I still think it's got one hell of a job on its hand if we're looking in 15, 20 years' time. I think paddle is explosively exciting and I think a brilliant sport which requires athleticism and skill. I think pickleball has huge participation and can be played by old and young and I think is the next great participation sport around the world. I think pickleball can really lay claim in a way that I don't think tennis can. Tennis is too difficult, particularly in a modern world where people spend 
much time on their devices and and in a virtual world, learning to play tennis is quite a big ask. So I was thrilled to see All England at its absolute greatest and then Flushing Meadows last night at its greatest as well. Tennis is still strong, but I think it's got some big questions to answer. All right. Well, listen, we've touched on golf and I want to talk about golf, not the live thing, but Roger, in your backyard, we've got the Ryder Cup coming up soon. I can't wait to see what the Italians make of the madness of the Ryder Cup because they're going to add their own splash of madness to what is already an insane event. I'm really, really looking forward to this. What's the mood like in Italy, Roger? Because I know golf is not a big sport over there. Is there a sense that the Ryder Cup is a big deal or not yet? No. I think if you did a box pop here and said, you know, Ryder Cups and what? What's the Ryder Cup? It's a major error to take the Ryder Cup to Italy. Major error. Well, we'll see. I know why you say that. I don't think I agree with you because I think the Ryder Cup just brings the fans in. It's like a just add golfers. The spectacle is is there. The only flat one we've had was the one in the US two years ago, and that was because there were no European fans allowed to enter the country. So it was just a one-sided event. I think it'll be magnificent, as it always is. The two teams that have been picked, it's been fascinating to watch the last couple of weeks. Brooks Kepka being picked from Liv to play on the US Ryder Cup team, which I would have picked exactly the same player as Zach Johnson did, except for maybe uh, Sam Burns. Uh, I don't think Sam Burns. No, I would have, I would have picked Thomas. I absolutely would have picked Thomas. I think in match play, I'd take him all day long. But the European ones, Jilo, you know, I want to come to you for this because you know a lot of these guys. But the European one was was interesting. I felt incredibly sorry for Adrian Moronk. I thought he played brilliantly and probably deserved to be in that team. What was your thinking on the US and particularly the European selections, Charles? Well, <laughs> the selection was hard enough pre-live and pre-all of the things in terms of captain's picks and who gets to play in the stars. I think really tough for Donald because the decision be made that many of the, the great old wise heads of Ryder Cup were not going to be available, those who'd gone to live. So that was a problem in itself. So it's a new team. Luke Donald is, I suspect... I mean, he was also not the first pick as captain. I mean, we don't forget that. Right. <laughs> Henrik Stenson was supposed to be the captain and had life and things been different. So that was one thing. And then you've got this American thing where live golfers are. I, I kind of want to go back to what Roger said earlier. I'm sure you're, well, of course you're right. You live in Italy and you are a, basically an Italian. People may not care in Italy, but I wonder if that matters. There are many sporting events like, I don't know, the Rumble in the Jungle, where the boxing then particularly took off, but remains one of the great exhibition circus events. Rog, is there a sense that you, you could have that, you know, Italy is one of the great sporting countries. It's obviously where some of the original sport ever came from. That just having something as fabulous as the Ryder Cup, where you've got Europe versus America coming to Rome for the first time, just creates a great narrative and a great backdrop, which could live in posterity, even if it doesn't grow as it didn't in France, the golf market particularly. Does it matter, is my question. Well, it's a good point you make about France, coming back to Grant's point. The Ryder Cup needs people uh, at the ground cheering the players on that understand golf. Now, there's enough of them in Italy that I'm sure they'll be there, but they're all, what's the nicest way to say this? They're all fannies, like the middle class fannies. <laughs> and that's the nicest you know, like, way, okay. <laughs> you know, like, What's the nastiest way? <laughs> you know, like they, they, they'll, they'll all be dressed up beautifully, you know, with the, the, the Gucci bag and the umbrella. And, you know, they'll all be quaffing away at whatever and saying good shot. I'm pretty certain a lot of them will not be able to identify the players. And 
I'm just a great believer that in, in, in the world of popular culture and entertainment sector, you need to have connection with the, the blue-collar market. But, 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 uh, but Rog, whilst it might not be you, because obviously you don't like immigration queues anymore and passport machines, surely there are going to be many, many Europeans and Americans, like there were in France, coming to Rome, which is not a poor city to come and visit, to pour out onto the fairways and to be very vocal. And I say that because I went to the Ryder Cup in France in 2018. I was lucky enough to go there and I spent two of the three days as a spectator and I knew it must have been a British crowd because there were five Mr Whippy vans um, around the uh, around the fairways it didn't feel like it was carte d'or or no that's probably just a fake French ice cream brand it was definitely Mr Whippy and they'd come over as they told me on the ferry <laughs> to come and serve soft scoop Mr Whippy ice cream with a 99 flake thanks very much for coming Look, Giles, jokes aside, I think they'll probably, certainly as a TV product, look okay. And the golf will be good because there's just wonderfully talented players on both sides. And the format is really compelling with lots of jeopardy. I'm sure it'll be good, but it's the wrong location for the reasons that I said. It's just the wrong location. And, and it's part of a bigger theme. You mentioned the tennis earlier. And I'll throw in world athletics, which I hope you know, because I didn't happened recently you know i didn't know the u.s open was on until the semis i didn't know the women's final i didn't know either of those players i did fall in love with that girl coco loved her the other one less so but what i'm saying is we really are overestimating the importance of the sporting calendar for the vast majority of people that live in this globe of ours in 2023. Rugby World Cup, I can't see it here. I couldn't see the cricket. The Women's World Cup in Italy was on an extremely marginal channel. And at the same time, folks and kids and consumers are watching other stuff. You know, they're watching Jake Paul. And I know I've said this for five years, but honestly, I have been right on this. You are overestimating what you call the specialness and the unscripted drama of sport. Unscripted drama might be the best product, but it's not the best business for a sustainable future. And I'm afraid most of our industry still hasn't grasped that. They're getting there with piracy now. They're getting there with the cable bundle but they still tune into what they think is working, like a rugby World Cup, and they think, oh, everything's rosy in the garden. It isn't. Most people don't care. Most people don't care. So, Raj, let me ask you then. Against that backdrop, I understand exactly why you said all that. Let's revisit what the Saudis are trying to do, because you know, if sport isn't that important, if we're overestimating its importance in the consciousness of the world, then are the Saudis just pouring money down a hole they don't need to pour it down are they going to get what they're looking for from sport it's a great question and it comes back to what i said before they probably realize well maybe they don't because you know they don't have to be that specific about targeting but i don't think they're that bothered if they win over the 700 million in america and europe they are going to invest in sport to make saudi the center of global sport to hit the 7 billion others and the 7 billion others (laughs) they're not that bothered about the Rugby World Cup they're bothered about other kinds of sport and other kinds of entertainment whether you call it the Kings League or Sidemen or Jake Paul or all of that stuff and that is the absolute blind spot of this industry 
They project what they want, what they think is right, with their eyes and their demographic on people that don't care about any of that and are playing a much, much bigger game. Saudi is after the seven billion grant. So, Rod, you're talking about the seven billion of, of non-North America and Europe, right? So that's seven hundred million taken out. So the seven billion, two thirds of that would be in Asia, right? I think so. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Africa's so big. Are golf and football the sports that is absolutely compelling Indians and Chinese, which must be where the majority of a lot of that proportion is. Is that where it is? Or is the Saudi playing cricket actually the one to watch in terms of from an India market? Because I don't see China at this stage being absolutely cock-a-hoop about football, not to the kind of level that we're talking about yet. Or is that going to be the play? Well, that's a good point. If you look at sports, the ones that I would bet on for exactly your argument there, Giles, it's cricket and it's uh, football. Asia is absolutely in love with the EPL and they will fall in love with the SPL. Cricket, we don't need any further explanation. It's an Asian sport by now, 100% an Asian sport. And I would have a strong look at things like badminton, table tennis, that for some reason haven't found a model yet. It's quite interesting. Our old friend Chris Cairns is working with the Saudis, with the, the governing body of table tennis to try and do something in Kadia. That's how I would answer your question, Giles. Re-specifically, the Chinese and football, and will they ever fall in love with it? I think they will. I think they will. Well, and I, I, I'm, I'm really heartened you said badminton. I'm very proud of the fact that, God... Seven or eight years ago, the, one of the last deals Great I did, sport. did for HSBC was the World Badminton Tour, which HSBC continue to sponsor globally, I think, 30 tournaments around the world. And if you ask most British people, to your point about the kind of the Western focus, they look at you with incredulity. But I know that it's one of the sports at HSBC, which is quite a good bellwether for the Asian market, let's be fair. They've continued to support it because they know that's where the big future is. So I, I, I don't disagree. I'm also very aware that Major League Pickleball are looking very hard at India and China for exactly the reasons you've said, is that um, those kind of participation sports, which don't require necessarily brute power, but require skill and speed, which is very like badminton, you may see some growth there. I think it's really interesting to me. I remember when I lived in Hong Kong, and gosh, in the early days of living in Hong Kong, so I'm going back 15 years, someone from India at the Hong Kong Cricket Club said to me, what did I think about cricket being an Olympic sport? And I remember rather arrogantly saying that I thought that might never happen and how absurd. And I'm eating my words, not because I believe in the Olympics particularly, I think we've had that conversation many times, but the fact that cricket is so powerful that the Olympics are now looking at cricket and hoping that they might come on in and be part of the show tells you everything you need to know about the bus that cricket has been. And I think with the Rajasthan Royal story that you talk about with Yorkshire, which is culturally fascinating, it's probably time we got Manoj Badali back on the show because what a story he's got to tell with the, with the growth of the mm, Royals as a, as a franchise. Raj, it strikes me in what you said there, it makes perfect sense to me. Is there not a chance that the Saudis are going about this all the wrong way? Should the Saudis not be throwing their money at the Kings League and at the Jake Paul fights and at pickleball instead of trying to get these, you know, again, we come back down to these sporting vanity projects, right? This idea that you want your name above the big leagues in the world, the big name clubs. Should they not be spending this money more wisely, you think, and saying, right, we're going to own pickleball, we're going to own 
esports. We're going to own all these games that you see this younger demographic migrating towards and we'll own them. I think they are doing that. Just doesn't get our attention as much, but I think they are active in those areas. But again, we're in more tactics than strategy. I think they've got a very strong representation of Formula One, which is global. Football, which is global, they obviously have a major play to get Saudi 2030 for the World Cup. I'd be astonished if they didn't get that. I don't think they've necessarily done their thinking in a precision way, because when you've got a lot of money, you don't need to, but they'll get to everything. They'll get to everything and see when all those second, third and fourth tier sports go no bid for their rights, wouldn't that be a great time to just come along and say, I'll pick you up now, rugby league, you know, even rugby union itself. I mean, you know, that's another one, Uh, volleyball, cycling, all of these things, you know, if they were being super smart, I take your point, there is a view that they are just being even smarter than we think and they're just waiting for this perfect storm to just knock all the valuations down and then take it from there. Roger, what else have you got rattling around that Scottish head of yours? I had a couple of things that, you know, I wanted to ask you about and things that were passing by before. Djokovic and the tennis picking up the shot of the day from the sponsor Moderna has to be one of the most ironic, (laughs) ironic moments in the history of the world. I don't know. I mean, like this is slightly widening, but it's important because he took a stand on that. Our friend Eddie Pepperell took a stand on it. I know a lot of people who never get vaccinated. I did, and willingly. But in the last two years, I've just come across a lot of people, many younger than me, that have had significant health problems since these uh, vaccines. And, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, did you ever get vaccinated, Grant? I did. I had to. I didn't want to do it, to be honest with you. Uh, I wasn't marched there at gunpoint, but being in the Cayman Islands, if I wanted to travel, uh, I had to get vaccinated. It was that simple. So... I did it very reluctantly, but I absolutely got vaccinated. I just think, you know, that brought it home to me last night when you see Moderna all around the US Open and it takes me on a little bit gels to sponsorship because you're right back in the middle of it now and, like, really at the centre of the centre. It's been announced, hasn't it, what you guys did in rugby? I mean, like, is that not not something we want to talk about? I fucking want to talk about this because, you know... here we go. You know, (laughs) it's a good thing because you're now back taking those calls from rights holders who, as you always used to say, always laughed at your jokes because you had the checkbook. Three or four years later, what difference have you found in the rights holder world? Well, I think you know the answer to this. It's- well, that's a, yeah, on you go. I wasn't going to let this episode go without asking. Yeah. I do find it amazing with the amount of education that's happened in the sports industry in the last three or four years, of which I'm sure this podcast has played a little part, I hope, with some people. What's changed, Rog, is that now people talk about data and digital and it gets onto the slides at some point. But what I don't think is being unpicked is where that value of the data that exists within a fan base and that being the um, unit of currency that should be sold to a sponsor. And still I'm seeing very similar-looking decks They may have upgraded the platform and they may have a better slide transition and better animation, I suppose. But still at the heart of it, it's a B2B product sell. And 
I have been interested as I've looked at quite a lot of different propositions around the world for the company I'm working for now that is interested in partnership as the Howden brand begins to grow internationally and, and, and is a very data-led organization because insurance is a you very... You have to be insurance. Data, you, and our friend, Quants. great friend, Elliot Richardson, is leading the charge on how data is so important to the insurance industry. And therefore, this is a company and these are companies that the prism that they're looking through the world is about data and analytics and about communities of people and how you can break those down, whether they be fans and, and who they are. And still there is a reticence from the sports industry. Not entirely. There are, of course, some that are strong, but not as strong as you would think. And if you ask some of the friends in football that we have who work for some of the big rights holders that we know, they will tell you privately that it's still not nearly as advanced as it should be. And because of this changing of the guard with media that we've talked about on this show and we'll talk about a lot in the future... If you're not selling good, strong media, well, what is it you are selling? The one thing you can sell is the people who love you. And if you don't know who they are and all of these things about data that we're talking about, the lack of knowledge is really astonishing to me. And there are great deals. So it will change, but my God, it should have changed already, particularly as the waves are lapping up. The tide is really rising fast now. And it comes back down to people haven't listened because it was too cosy. And a lot of the things that you talked about, God, three, four years ago, not even a year ago, is happening. It's not all doom and gloom. One of the sponsorships that my company is involved with probably has some of the most engaged fan base and demographic in the UK and Ireland, in the British and Irish Lions, which is incredibly attractive to a sponsor that is looking to brand itself because we're relatively unknown at the moment. People will know, but it, this is a, a strategy to become more engaged with a certain community, very targeted in, in a particular market, set of markets, and to a very particular demographic. So we're approaching it in a scientific way, and we are educating the industry along the way of what we want from it. And I'm hoping very much that this will be one of the world's great expositions in sport about how sponsorship can be incredibly powerful. I lived through the 2009 global financial crisis as a sponsorship guy working for a very, very big bank, as people who know me and know the, the show will know at HSBC. We didn't have very strong unit demographics at all. Um, we survived and got through it. But the ROI and the KPIs were pretty flimsy. And we got through on hospitality and media numbers, and that was enough. What I want to do is to create sponsorship, which is empirical across every single facet, which is based on data and intelligence, whether it be at a corporate hospitality level, whether it be at a fan engagement level, whether it be about digital engagement and sales, and that everything is recorded so that the ROI that the finance director of organizations, which are the, after all the people who hold the purse strings, and right now the economies are tough out there, can say this was a good investment decision because we spent X and got X plus Y or X plus Z or whatever it yeah. needs to be, whatever the formula is, rather than here's a 90-page slide with media numbers from TV data that looks so heavy that could stop a fire door from shutting fast, but has actually no value whatsoever. No, I just, I just think that is maybe the most important part of the podcast that we've recorded today. You're being modest because it isn't just about data with Howden and the lines that you've delivered with Elliot. Howden is one of the top 
private companies in the UK, maybe just behind Enios. So right up there, really big company that's come together through acquisitions of companies with different cultures. So what is better than sponsoring the Lions, which by definition is exactly that. I am just so interested. I love the Lions. I'm not really that interested in rugby anymore, but I love the Lions. And I just think, as you say, you could be on the poster child sponsorship for this decade. And I wish you all the best. Well, you're kind, Rog. We certainly want to. And I think for me, it, to have preached it for so long on this podcast in particular and various writing and you know, articles I've written is that I believe so passionately in digital communities and fan bases. And those can be quite niche. You don't have to be global. You can be country specific. You can even be a county if you live in England. It can just be about Yorkshire cricket fans, for goodness sake. But there is a value if you know those people and what makes them tick. And what's fabulous about the British and Irish Lions is they have a very, very engaged fan base. Because if you love rugby and you're from the UK and Ireland, the chances are you are a Lions fan as well. And therefore you are engaged through the digital channels that the Lions own, whether that's the chance to get involved with the tour, to buy merchandise, to hear news about selection, the whole excitement of who gets to be the coach, who gets to be the captain, who gets to go on the tour becomes a narrative and a real talking point that fans absolutely love. If you can then be part of that conversation credibly as a sponsor and you can start to really unpick who those fans are, you've got a chance of then selling your wares. And certainly for us and, and for other sponsors, I know that's going to be, I hope, that the new world order to help sport find its new feet. Because with the media model so challenged, however it ends up, sport's going to require income. And the income to me is about the value of the fan base and growing the fan base every single day. And the brilliant minds of brands, and you know, you think of the Coca-Colas of this world and the great FMCG companies who really understand consumers and understand what makes them tick to purchase. If you can harness that through sport and indeed music, entertainment and other areas through the passion that people have, you've got half a chance of getting some really big investment. And that is exciting for our industry because as much as we decry and worry about the future, we all want a future for sport and we've got to find new sources of revenue to do that. All right, well, listen, I promised we'd come back to the Women's World Cup. And so I think before we finish, we need to do that. Not necessarily the football, but the events afterwards at the prize-giving ceremony, <laughs> which uh, cascaded out of nowhere. And as we record this today on Monday... Rubiales has stepped down, I think, in the last 24 hours. Roger, I'm going to come to you on this. What did you make of the whole thing and what's happened since? You know, one has to be so careful talking about this these days. That's why know? I came to you um, first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, I genuinely believe that in the classic definition of feminist, I absolutely am 100% in that definition. Over many years, talked about the huge opportunity of women's sport and I've covered it fairly consistently in the book as well. I also live in a part of the world, Southern Europe, that is nowhere near as woke as the UK and certain parts of America now. So when I saw what happened, I was confused, which is unusual for me. I can often be wrong, but I'm not usually sitting on the fence because I think in some ways... 
And it's when you guys will see this in Como, there'll be people greeting each other in ways that are very tactile. And, you know, you'll say, oh, my God, you know, they still do this here. It isn't that weird. So when I saw what he did, I thought, well, that's a bit strong, but OK, he's Spanish, blah, blah, blah. I've seen it every day in Italy. It happens every day. Then the reaction to that and the girls themselves and then the girls saying that they weren't happy with their coach. And then you start thinking, well, this is an incident that maybe has brought out a whole lot of stuff that was under the carpet that was bad stuff. And that this incident has just been the kind of like symbol of a misogyny in a football association, which wouldn't be the first one, would it? This is where I'm conflicted on this because I don't have a high opinion of football governing bodies and they're full of male, pale and stale people like that guy. To answer your question, I thought in terms of the gesture itself, it didn't surprise me for the place that I live in today. But when the women and the girls complain about it, I start to think that they probably have got a reason for that. And I'm glad he's gone. Yeah, to be honest, that's pretty much where I come down. The same thing, I saw it. To be honest, like you thought, well, I didn't expect that, but didn't really think much of it until all the backlash started. And then kind of the more you think about it, A, I agree with you, there must be something deeper than that going on. The thing that kind of, when do we get past the stage where someone could make an apology? Like a public apology, say, like, I'm so sorry, I got carried away with the emotion of the event. I'm so sorry, right? The emotions were high. It was a massive moment for Spain. I don't know what the story is behind it, and I suspect you're right, Roger, and there's more to it than that, which changes things dramatically. But in and of itself, an event like that, there should be room for, on the one side, someone to say, I was deeply offended by what you did, and for the other person to say, I am so sorry, I did not mean to offend you. I, I will never do that again, I apologise. We seem to have lost the ability as a culture to do that, and I find that incredibly sad, incredibly sad. Jala, what was your take do, on it Do you think that, that the point that you've both picked up on is the Rubiales kiss could have just been a moment of emotion? Let's just call it that. If the players hadn't minded or really supported him, even if the media had picked up on this, wouldn't the players have said, look... Fuck him. Just sort it. He's our person and, and yeah. therefore uh, yeah, I, it's no, not I a problem. I, I completely agree, Giles. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. It seems to me that the, the sinister piece was not the kiss itself. It was clearly that other things must have, have happened and therefore an apology would have been inconsequential because there wasn't the groundswell of support behind the scenes. I think when you've got real support, particularly at this level of players and, and in an organisation where someone is beloved and is respected and they may do something wrong, I think they tend to be able to survive with an apology still. We live in a world where apologies are not forgiven, and in a world of digital infinity, something that you do can last forever and forever. And that's a, you know, apologies are therefore harder to justify. But I, I think don't know if I agree one, with that, Jarlo. I'm not sure if I agree with that. I think this was something, no matter what happened, the media were going to stick this between the teeth and run with it. And they did for weeks, right? Because you knew this was such a massive story to write and it pushed all the buttons that send people scuttling for their phones and to read articles in their droves. I'm pretty sure the outcome is the right one, not necessarily for the reasons given, but I'm pretty confident saying it's the right outcome. 
it just makes me think on a broader scale, you know, what's happened to us. Rog is right. That culture that you have immersed yourself in, Rog, is a throwback culture, but, you know, a lot of the people that live in that culture don't want it changed, right? That They don't want it changed in, in any way, shape well, or form. When you say throwback, again, I would challenge you on that the way I did before. It's a throwback only when you sit yourself in London or in, no, or no, in no, California exactly right. no, I, you're and right. the rest of the world, way. you can still kiss a girl and say, you know, I'm really fond of you. And it ends there. Maybe it's the very noisy minority that is getting well over its skis and all this stuff on it. And I just think, I'm just, as I said at the start, you have to be careful what you say, but, you know, I'm pretty fed up with the whole thing, to be honest. Well, there's two other things I want to talk about. You teased one there, Rog, which is you mentioned the book you're writing. So I want to ask you how that's coming on and, and when Hard. we might all get a chance to read it. I know it's hard. But believe me, I know writing is not an hard. easy thing to do. So how, how's it all going? Well, 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 no, but I mean, you say that and I did all those articles and it was like shell and peas, to be honest. It was like they, I mean, they were a regular every weekly thing and they were fine and people liked them and I thought this is easy. When I was speaking to the guy we know in, in Sicily, the, the artist, I said, look, you know, I'm going to do a book. And uh, the classic, classic answer, he said, any fool can put out the odd single that makes a success. Writing a book's like writing a concept album. Good luck with that. And I thought, yeah, right, that's no problem for me. Fuck me. I mean, it's really tough. Okay, it's not an easy book to write because it's a mixture of a hard finance, your kind of world, really, really, you know, gamma, beta, alpha, that kind of detail of finance. And we're also talking about some of the sport things that are a lot more funny and light and unscripted drama and romanticism and all of that. So it's it's a difficult mix to put together. But the funny thing that this is, I think to my credit, I realised this was a little bit beyond me. So I got a, an editor well, actually, I met him. He wanted to speak to me about one of the articles and the one I did about Gianni Agnelli. Uh, this is a guy, he's a Liverpoolian guy, Tobias Jones. He's a best-selling author. He's done a lot of really great books and he lives in Parma for some reason. And, you know, we met and we got on and he said, let me help you with the book because I know you'll be struggling because he understands. And I said, okay. And he's just one of these super nice people. He volunteers for, you know, soup kitchens. He works in a hospice. He, he, he does English lessons for immigrants that arrive in Parma. Just one of these super nice people. And so we've been working for about six months together. And uh, last month I went down to Parma. I had the reason to go down to Parma. We met for lunch. And I said to him, it's going okay, you know, like, how do you feel the process has gone? And he says to me, you know, um, actually very well for me because I wasn't sure you would take my criticism well. Guys, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, why would he think I would be somebody that would take criticism badly? <laughs> what is it in my personality that gives him the... Of course, we all know what he was thinking about. And the reality is, this is really funny. Whatever happens to the book, it's not the destination, it's the journey. This has been a, a blast for me. And a, and a real learning process, because he comes up and like, I, I do all these stuff and, and he comes back with all this editing, with all the tracking and the red lines. And then his little comment is, not adding anything. Grandstanding. He's cut all this stuff out that I think is some of the coolest prose, you know. And I'm saying, okay, okay. And I agree it when we're on the phone. I put the phone down. I, you, you scouse motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> How can you do that? You know, like it is. So the whole thing has been an absolute blast. And then maybe at the end of the day, the book's crap. But the journey for me has been really, really cool. Fantastic. And when might those of us listening get a chance to read it? Probably about November for the Christmas market. There's a little teaser coming out in Como. We'll, Christmas we'll give... market. I love it. <laughs> it sounds as if it's going to sell anything. <laughs> Instead of a lump of coal for your stocking these days, it's, it's from Roger's book. <laughs> Is it a goodie bag? <laughs> item? That's it. Oh. The, the two, first two chapters are in the goodie bag. It's a little teaser. Oh, I can't um, wait! I can't wait to read it. Me neither, I can't wait to read it. Amazing. Well, there's one more order of business, and that is um, to talk about uh, a new show that we are going to be working on. Jilo, why don't you uh, tell people our latest cockamamie scheme? Another harebrained scheme from the groundsman. Well, we get a lot of feedback all the time from people about the shows, and we are obviously vocal. We're also honest and say what we think about the world of sport that we love and get confounded by. But one of the things that, as the podcast has grown, I think we've attracted the interest of some really important people within the world of sport. And they've inquired whether they could come on the show or shows and talk about their thing. But sometimes people are nervous about the grilling that they'll face from all of us, obviously, but from Rog. And I thought it would be a good idea that we would also do a show and trial it for five shows, which is called um, The Bucket List, which is where we're going to get people from the world of sport to talk about the bucket list events within their sport, perhaps even the event organisers themselves. So not to talk with rose-tinted glasses too much because we still reserve the right to send in Rog down any foxhole we like and to have a go. <laughs> but, to try and talk, but to try and talk about the magic of what makes some events so special and what is it about them that just ignites the passion in fans. So I'm really excited. We've got a sponsor, uh, Infinity Sports Travel, who send enormous cruise boats around the world full of fans to go to great big sporting events. So brilliant market for, for, for them and us. And I'm really chuffed that they're coming in as a sponsor. And I'm also really excited. We have another Knight of the Realm joining us on the show. I've been trying to get him for a long time, but we have Sir Andrew Strauss um, joining us for the first show, very specifically to talk about the bucket lists of cricket. And when you think about how cricket has changed in the last 15, 20 years, and in the time he was playing for England, and then as an administrator for England, he was very much at the heart of the change of the game and seeing it globally. So Straussy coming on to talk about the, so what are the bucket lists of, of cricket now? Because if you think about now with the IPL final, for instance, now going that over a, a, another type of game. So... That's the, going to be the opening show. I think that's the first week of October after Lake Como. And then we'll do one a month and hopefully we'll get a, a number of uh, the big sporting events. And the one I really want, as you remember, the old show I used to do, The Captain's Table, um, before we sort of took it into a live event, was of the 38 guests I had on The Captain's Table, 32 of uh, the events that the, the event that people wanted on the bucket list was the Super Bowl. So it is my intention that we will get invited to um, speak to Roger Goodell about the Super Bowl, and he invites all of us to the Super Bowl in the future so we can see if it's as good as everyone says. So that is the dream. I'm just going to be completely unashamed about that. I'm doing the bucket list with you boys so we get to go to the Super Bowl. So come on, NFL, help us out. <laughs> 
Way to go, Giles. Well, Blended. fellas, look, it's... Uh, Great work, it, Giles. Great work. It's been a very, very long summer, and uh, I've missed some of you more than others, if I'm honest. Uh, <laughs> Jimmy, I've missed you the most. Jimmy the Greek, our ace producer. The other two, yeah, you know, I've survived. Come and go. But it is good. It is good to be back. It is good to be back. And now we are back. We shall continue to record these podcasts every week. Our thanks, as always, to all of you out there for listening to us. We hope you've missed us as much as we've missed you. Please continue to send feedback. You'll find us on Twitter if you don't uh, follow us there already. It's very easy to remedy that. You'll find us at EntertainR. That's the word, A-R-E. You'll find me at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And you'll find me, Giles Morgan, at GilesMorgan71. And you'll find myself at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Gentlemen, always a pleasure. Good to be back. I'll see you both soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.